episode of the Haptics Club podcast. I'm Brian, I'm the creative lead at SenseGov, and I'm joined by uh, the one and only founder of the Haptics Club, Eric from Razer. The Haptics Club is a team of people that have a passion for haptics. Our goal is to raise awareness of the amazing tech and people in haptics, foster interesting discussions on the subject. We are so happy to be here for yet another amazing season of the Haptics Club with even more surprises and new exciting guests. Speaking of which, right now we're joined by Ed Colgate, a leader in the field of haptic interfaces for over three decades. He's a mechanical engineer, inventor, and entrepreneur. There is so much to learn and talk about today. Uh, we'll divide the hour with a five-minute intro, then 15 minutes of questions on the area of expertise, 10 minutes on the future of haptics, and then we will uh, course, over the challenges and opportunities of the haptics industry in general. Around the 30-minute mark, we'll stop the recording and open up the floor for the audience and uh, to ask questions to our guests, so be ready. To anyone listening to our podcast, you're missing out. Be sure to visit thehapticsclub.com and sign up for a newsletter so you don't miss the next live event. Uh, last for the opener, this season of the Haptics Club podcast is sponsored by the Haptics Industry Forum, an association of haptics companies. This sponsor really helps us out running these episodes, so thank you very much to them. So... Enough for the opener. Uh, Ed, welcome to the podcast. You had a long career in both academia and entrepreneurship in haptics. However, you started from robotic grippers at the beginning of your career at IMT. So when exactly did the interest in haptics and human perception start to take the predominance of your time? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, first of all, let me just uh, thank you and Eric uh, and the, the team at the Haptics Club podcast for having me. Um, I've watched quite a few of your podcasts, which are just terrific, and uh, it's a real, real honor uh, to to be here talking to you. Um, so yeah, as you emphasized, I've had a, a over three decade career in haptics. Um, kind of one of the one of the old guys in the field. Um, I started um, my path into it. It came from having been a grad student um, in mechanical engineering at, at MIT in the, the late '80s um, when um, kind of people interacting with robots and robots interacting with the world in general was a pretty hot topic. Um, um, you know, at, at the time, and really to some extent still today, um, most of our robots are, are really better at um, executing very precise movements in free space and not so great when they come into contact with the world. Um, and, and so my PhD really looked at that question, how do we have a robot um, touching the world, maybe moving along a surface um, and doing that in a stable fashion and, you know, be able to control the, the normal forces, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I looked at some questions there. So I was already thinking about interaction between robots and stuff, but not so much people. But when I came here to Northwestern, um, um, I, uh, I thought it would be interesting to begin to look at using um, robots um, for remote manipulation purposes. Not a new idea, actually an idea that dates back to the Chicago area, to, to Argonne National Lab in the 1940s for um, moving around uh, nuclear materials um, uh, from, a, from a safe uh, location. Um, uh, but I was interested in, in perhaps uh, varying scale between the, uh, the operator interface and that remote manipulator. And um, so the first thing to do was to build an operator interface uh, and one that could provide force feedback. Uh, so uh, I worked with one of my early students, a guy named Paul Millman, who's been his career at Intuitive Surgical. Um, and we developed that um, and, uh, and began to, to think about how to you know, uh, provide that force feedback. 
I kind of ran out of money to build that small remote manipulator, um, and so we simulated it. Um, and of course, unbeknownst to me, because I did not know the word, uh, this was a this was a haptic uh, haptic device, a haptic uh, interface. Um, pretty quickly, I, I, I did learn that word, and uh, and a few other people around around the globe were starting to think about these things as well, and we began to come together. And so that's kind of how I found my way into the world, very much through this this sort of kinesthetic force feedback path. Uh, what more can I tell you? <laughs> Thank you very much. So, um, yeah, that's a beautiful background ad. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit what, yeah, what triggered that transition from uh, being into the robot side of haptics towards the human side, and what, did, yeah, what different yeah. things did you have to study as an expert of robotics to get into this field of haptics? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I love about the haptics field is how interdisciplinary it is. Um, it did not start that way, right? It was really a bunch of mainly uh, mechanical engineer roboticists um, thinking about how to, you know, uh, tackle problems like um, simulating, um, you know, a hard virtual surface. That's kind of how I got my start in the field. Um, and we didn't really think about people except that we needed them to <laughs> to move the devices. We were really, in fact, I was very explicitly, I was developing passivity theory and doing things so that I didn't have to think too hard about the person. So I could kind of endow the haptic interface with some properties so that I would know it would be reasonably well behaved and, you know, I had this idea of Z-width. It could, it could implement things that felt very stiff and things that felt very light uh, and and try not to think about the person. Um, <laughs> that's actually kind of where the, you know, where I was and when many people in the field were, uh, uh, there weren't that many, but uh, in the early days. And we we're very, very fortunate that, that some of uh, the, the real great minds in uh, the psychology of touch, um, in particular, Susan Lederman and then uh, Bobby Klatsky, um, uh, found what we were doing to be interesting um, and, uh, and actually, you know, took the the effort to attend conferences, which were things like, you know, American Society of Mechanical Engineer conferences, um, and to begin to, to interact with us. And so slowly over a period of time, um, mainly due to the influence of, you know, these titans of the field, um, uh, we began, we in the field began to think a little bit more about about the um, the human experience and about how to design experiments to capture that. But you know, I think partly what happened is that uh, after, oh gosh, you know, a decade or more of sort of emphasis on first feedback devices, um, uh, more and more interest began to grow in in, in the skin uh, as as an important medium uh, for interaction. It really wasn't there in a very big way in the very beginning of the field. People had actually thought about it in 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 uh, much earlier in terms of things like um, you know um, interfaces for the blind, um, uh, but uh, it wasn't really a mainstay part of the field. But then it began to to come in um, as more consumer electronic devices, particularly smartphones, began to sort of pose some interesting questions um, and and also frankly a lot of the first feedback stuff became more mature so there were more opportunities and so now as you as you start to get into these problems that, that involve the skin which is so rich and so replete you know in in in, in receptors and um, sensory experience uh, became more and more important to, to think about that human experience and to have really robust methods for for measuring it um, 
So, um, you know, over time, uh, the field became even more um, interdisciplinary. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, it was um, a, a gradual process, but one that that really um, began to to take off. Uh, frankly, one of the people who's here with it, uh, here with us today, Mark Salata, um, uh, in the audience here, um, was a PhD student of mine who was the first person to really think about bringing um, the experience of what's happening at the skin together with some of this uh, kinesthetics that we'd been doing. Um, and from that point forward in our lab, it really kind of took off. Thanks, Ed. That's great introduction, and uh, it's a wonderful way to to flow to our second section. It's more about the area of expertise, and um, really, what we are looking forward here is some, you know, lifelong take-home message and something that students that are newbies in haptics or uh, pure engineers or pure designer uh, that are, uh, you know, have a traditional tra a training and comes in this field of haptics where it's so interdisciplinary and you have to consider many, many things to create a, an excellent haptics experience. What we're looking forward is this kind of, you know, soft learning that, uh, that you got. And really, you, you are one of the veterans, right? And you witnessed a lot of technologies rise and fall, a lot of interest in many different areas that has like a spike of interest and then it went downwards for whatever reason. So. We would like to ask you, what are the characteristics that the new haptics technology needs to be successful, or in academia or in the market? Uh, that uh, what, what is that some early signs that are uh, someone should recognize to see? Okay, this is something that makes sense. Invest my ears on. Yeah, it's a really good question, Eric, and I think it's frankly one of the most important questions that anybody in the field should be asking themselves. Um, because it's very, we, it's a field. I think partly because it's still sort of in its infancy, um, where it's it's sort of very easy to um, go down rabbit holes, right? To to invest a lot of time and energy in um, a technology, perhaps because it seems cool, seems promising. But 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 if you take the time to ask the sort of questions you just asked, um, uh, you you may um, you may find that you can make better choices of where to, to put your put your time and energy. Um, I, I think ultimately, certainly in the marketplace, there's no question um, that the number one question to ask yourself is, what problem do you solve? Um, um, and you know, is there a better way to solve that problem <laughs> at the same time, right? Um, you know, a lot of haptic technologies have um, been developed um, usually by startups, you know, um, uh, because the founders have um, managed to, to create something kind of new and novel. Um, uh, but I think a, an important mark of whether they're going to stand the test of time or not is is whether they they solve an important problem that's very difficult to solve in some other way. And this is not true about just haptics, right? This is sort of a, a general truth. Um, uh, but it's a hard question to answer, right? And it takes a little bit of uh, clairvoyance <laughs> to know the to know the answer um, often. Um, but it's worth putting time and energy into to thinking that one through. And and our field in particular, I think, has suffered from it um, uh, time and time again. Um, 
uh, you know, haptics is a form of, you know, human machine interface, but we have, and we're using right now, um, other forms that are, you know, clearly more advanced and, and more powerful uh, in today's terms. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of a little bit on the outside looking in um, and trying to trying to understand where is it uniquely uh, that our haptic technologies can go and create value by solving problems. Um, you know, in the academic area, it's a little easier, right? Um, because, of course, um, there's value to be had in, in um, solving problems. Uh, problems that may or may not <laughs> create value out in, in the world, um, but that create new knowledge, um, not knowing where that's going to go. Uh, and there's great value in doing that. And, um, uh, and that's one of the things I love about academia is that freedom, that freedom to explore. Now, you know, at present, um, I'd say, though, that um, I guess I continue to see a lot of efforts in the academic field um, that uh, are sort of variations on old themes <clears throat> and, um, and, and you know I get it it can be it would you like to be more in, more specific it's fine we, we are uh, you can you can not uh, you can share a little bit more about this technology you can even say viver tactile or others sure that you sure. can yeah, say yeah so a good example are interesting. you know I mean a good example of variations on old theme would be in, um, let's um, uh, let's use vibrotactile actuators, but mount them to the body in a different way, or you know, <laughs> vibrate along different axes. But um, you, you know, the the reality is that that um, advances may occur in in, in that direction, um, but but they're unlikely to be as as sort of powerful as as those that are are based upon more fundamental advances in technology of which our, our world is replete i mean we, we live at a really interesting time um we have fields like soft robotics for instance that are that are um you know exploding and providing um really a, a wide set of novel tools uh, by which i mean um you know more sophisticated ways to um to select materials to 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 create materials to 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 manufacture uh, useful forms um more technologies that can be applied at the mesoscale um which is incredibly important when you're talking about the skin because we all understand that the you know resolution of, of tactile sensing on the skin is sort of millimeter-ish scale so we live in a world where there's some pretty extraordinary opportunities happening they're not necessarily easy <laughs> to to understand how to apply um and and many people like myself who have been doing haptics for a long time don't necessarily aren't necessarily trained um in in you know how to how to use uh, these these tools so there's some real challenges um but um but i do i, I do think that in the academic world um we're going to see some really exciting things coming out of the you know confluence of some of these these um these new approaches that sort of broadly speaking are coming out of the soft robotics type of effort um you know and and so I'm, I'm very very excited about that um but then as you think about taking those things and translating them into the marketplace we have to come back to that earlier <laughs> topic right what problem is being solved and sometimes that's the much harder problem uh, actually yeah, a little sometimes bit also how, how much it costs because at the end of the day it's also a part of the equation i i, I changed i joined hat right now i'm in a company and doing yeah. consumer electronic devices and uh, uh, when I pitch an idea to my product design director, product development director, I say, yes, how much it costs? First question. <laughs> and uh, somehow, it, even if you are able to articulate a nice business case around that, you say, look, uh, that's fine. Uh, you have to go down like 80% of the cost. Otherwise, even if it's the best things in the world, doesn't matter the price point that our customer can buy. 
So even if it's a great experience, I can do it. Yeah, and that's right. next challenge, let's say. Well, you know, I think I believe it sort of ultimately is a cost benefit um, and that if there's sufficient benefit, then that will feed back into the cost, right? Um, uh, you know, we, we can all put extraordinary amounts of computing and extraordinary numbers of pixels and so forth into our pocket um, in an affordable way. Um, so, you know, we can we can solve um, problems of cost if there is motivation to do that, um, right? And I think where we as a field, you know, just in some sense, you can blame it on me and my generation. We just didn't quite solve the problems yet of, of you know, how do we create that much value, um, uh, you know, out in, in the real world that 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 the incentive is there to drive down those costs, right? Um, and it's not clear as we sit here and talk about haptics today. It's not entirely clear where that's going to come from, right? Um, that's it's that's that's uh, maybe the hard hard problem of haptics. Um, uh, academically, by the way, I, I think the hard problem of haptics is realism. Um, and 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 I think we don't talk nearly enough about that. Uh, and I think the reason we don't talk nearly enough about it is that we don't believe it. We don't even believe it's possible. Um, you know, uh, and and I think that's a mistake. Um, I mean, we spent the last Optics Club with uh, uh, in touch uh, researcher from UCL saying the the, the um, exact perpendicular things, <laughs> which is uh, that they they mentioned that for them it is the normalization of the haptic metaphor driven with an incomplete technologies that will get normalized over the final user that we announced the perceived realism and immersion by users and that was a little bit what they, what they did share i say okay look this is the reality it is like that what we believe is that the bar of believability moves and people will get accustomed and will get value a lot of value from that it's nice to see from your side that is the realism the realism acts that uh, academics are not talking are not taking much into consideration that's just to put in perspective to our listener and giving you a, a feedback from yeah. uh, what we heard Oh, of course, and 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 I say this in part to be a little controversial, um, uh, but but I do believe it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I think that you know realism is a is a loaded term, and and um, we can we can discuss it at some some great length. But um, uh, but I, I certainly think that history has proven that interface technologies become wildly valuable in our lives um, when they're able to um, present information in a way that our minds can instantly, you know, grasp and by the way, and, and provide a lot of information uh, in that way. Um, so again, you know, we're having this this video conference right now, and it's because we have the visual and auditory channels um, dialed into the point that you know, it's not that I, I believe I'm looking at Eric and, and Brian and you're really, really there on that piece of glass in front of me, right? But but my mind has, you know, zero problem of of um, interpreting and that um, as if you were, in fact, there in front of me. So it could be cartoons of you and I could still do that, right? So that's not necessarily realism, but, but the real key point here is that um, whereas there are many, and I guess your previous speakers are in this camp that would say, no, what we really need is, you know, we need these, these, these metaphors and these things that can be sort of interpreted and people will learn. Uh, I, I just, I, I disagree. I disagree. I think that, 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 
that there will be some small wins that way, but the big win, right, the big win is to be able to display information um, in a way that our, our sense of touch uh, can um, uh, interact with in a very rich fashion and very realistic fashion, again, meaning that we just understand it, right? Um, Do you uh, see something in that direction over the XPRIZE uh, uh, activities that is going on now? Uh, that's the first question. And the follow-up question is, do you see some promising technology and or devices today, both in academia and or industry, that uh, lead you to see the light in the end of the tunnel? Yeah, yeah great questions, both of them. Um, I'm glad you brought up the XPRIZE. Um, I'm, I'm actually involved with that as, as one of the judges, and uh, so I've been watching uh, and feeling and interacting with that technology here over the past few years. And and for you know all of your listeners, if you have a chance to, to get out to Long Beach uh, next week, next weekend um, for the finals, um, I think it promises to be a, a, a really extraordinary event. Um, Can you maybe remind uh, what is about the XPRIZE? Yeah, so what is this XPRIZE? Well, XPRIZE is a foundation that, that supports big um, big competitions. This particular one is called the ANA Avatar XPRIZE. ANA is a Japanese airline and they're the sponsor of this Avatar XPRIZE and the goal is to achieve remote presence. So um, what is what the teams uh, have been developing are operator interfaces uh, and then uh, avatar robots um, uh, that enable an operator to essentially embody that avatar robot um, in a physical world I didn't have um, a physical remote presence um, uh, and they're being tested uh, next week on um, I guess three main areas connection so using touch as a means to, to sort of create a, a richer connection than say just sight and sound that's one of them uh, another is uh, exploration uh, so the idea of you know exploring remote places like the moon or Mars, um, and and then the uh, other um, is essentially transporting skills. So if you have a particular skill, let's say you were a you know a, a physician who could make a very quick and, and certain uh, you know uh, diagnosis through touch, uh, can you do that sort of thing at a distance? Um, and so the, these these systems are very much multi-sensory. Haptics is a very key part of um, of all these interfaces. Um, and you know, I think that that technology from a number of the guests that you've had, and I think from probably from Brian's company, <laughs> you know, um, maybe from yours, uh, is very much part and parcel of um, some of some of the uh, the very competitive systems. Um, so to me, that's a really exciting um, direction, right? I mean, to me, uh, achieving this idea of of uh, uh, being able to defy distance, um, um, just as we're doing it now, but doing that uh, in an embodied way um, is a, a very exciting uh, topic that I think might actually solve some real problems in the real world. <laughs> so, uh, so that's I think an answer. That's the first question. Yeah. yeah. And the second um, one is, can you do you have some, uh, you know, um, really technology or companies if, if you naming this safe place really if you don't if you don't feel about it it's also fine uh, that uh, it it makes you believe that uh, this path to realism is uh, uh, getting uh, you know is getting explored sure yeah so uh, so for the most part my message here is that we don't take realism seriously enough <clears throat> um, and so there's 
frankly, not a lot of technology out there that even attempts to achieve realism, right? Um, uh, most of these things are sort of more represent, representational and all. I mean, like from the from the force feedback standpoint, um, you know, we we developed methods um, back in the early '90s of, you know, um, creating extremely um, extremely broad z width so we could run into virtual walls. You know, and it felt like you're running into a concrete wall. I mean, they were really really hard. And you know, the the experience of experience of shape and form um the tools are right there but but we don't really see that technology very much um in in play today and on the touch side um you know i've spent a fair amount of time over the last decade or so um trying to develop technologies to do things like virtual textures and it's basically been a failure <laughs> um, um and and so has pretty much everything else i've seen um uh, so, so is there any reason to be optimistic? I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. Um, I think what what's happened uh, alongside work on these technologies, um, and it is because we're in such an interdisciplinary field, is that we've also begun to understand better um, what actually matters in perception. And of course, we all know haptics is you know uh, sort of very multi multi-sensory you know there, there's 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 thermal there's sort of very rich types of um, different mechanical cues associated with the different sorts of receptors and so forth um but um but I think we're starting to make um, some pretty good progress in understanding uh, what um, the requirements might be so I'll, I'll give you an example um, for over a hundred years, since the the seminal work of David Katz, um, uh, we in haptics have tended to think about um, uh, touch and texture in in terms of this duplex theory, right? That there's this sort of vibration sense, and there's this kind of more shape type sense, um, and so I think of those as temporal and spatial. <clears throat> um, and so now, if I want to build a device to display texture does it need to be more temporal and more spatial both like you know how, how do you think about that um and because we had developed um variable friction devices which were really good at temporal we could we could modulate um you know friction very very fast but we're terrible at, at spatial <laughs> because they're basically just flat sheets of of, of surface um we thought well we should uh, we should focus on things like fine textures, where according to you know most of the work that's been done, it's really more of a temporal sense, um, and um, and we should be able to do these really well. Um, but it kept kind of seeming every time we try to implement a texture that sort of felt realistic, it just didn't. Um, and you know, partly I was like, well, we, maybe we just haven't figured out the right code, um, because after all, if I gave you a speaker, but no microphone. And said, you know, go and create Eric Vizzoli in his amazing Italian accent. Um, um, like, yeah, it would be impossible, right? Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we need that microphone, right? And and so we didn't really have a great way of knowing even what to record in a texture. And, um, but my one of my most recent PhD students, Roman Gregori, I gave him this problem, and I said, Roman, you know, we've got to figure out whether it's even possible to use variable friction to replicate a fine texture. I mean, we can't do that then, you know. And so he built a beautiful apparatus that enabled him to measure the vibrations in the skin as you're moving across a texture and also measure the forces that were occurring and then play those back really accurately. I mean, really accurately. And he did this and we would feel these things 
feel the real, feel the virtual. And they felt nothing alike, nothing. And it was like a complete disaster, a complete failure. Um, and, uh, and, and yet from that, right, from that failure, you learn some really important things. Um, and what we learned there, um, and then Roman went on to verify in a second set of experiments is that, is that the spatial variation within that contact patch where you're touching the surface, it matters even for very fine textures. It really matters. And he, he went on and built a, a, a pen array apparatus, which many people have done, but he emphasized on uh, building something that was high bandwidth so he could he could vibrate these these pens against the skin um, uh, at you know close to 100 hertz. Um, and and what was shocking to us is that you have a bunch of pens vibrating. Let's say they're all at the same frequency and the same amplitude, sitting there vibrating in your skin. But you begin to get them a little out of phase with one another. You can totally feel that. In fact, it's not subtle. It's a really big, strong effect. And so, you know, it's starting to, to, to sort of tell you that, that um, you know, what's happening within the contact patch, you might think as clearly as important for something like Braille, it's actually incredibly important for something like, you know, feeling velvet. Um, uh, yeah. What, what I love about what you're saying is two things. First, I had the same experience. <laughs> exactly, 2015, <laughs> we did this really nice profilometer. We took the ultrasonics on our side. We did the, the profile. It was a high bandwidth one. Oh, this is no, not going to apply. Okay, that crashed. That that, that's one. Yep. The second thing I love what you're saying is that about the out of phase vibration is that this is, you know, is nothing alike sound. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm preaching, preaching, is discussing all the time. But people say, oh, it's like it's like a glorified sound wave. And no, it has nothing to do with sound wave because as a difference, phase matter. And when we say that phase matter, means that you can really, really feel if it's out of phase. That means that anything around representing and digital tactile effect cannot really leverage what we know from the acoustic side and all from the sound perception and all the compression on the sound side because for the specific things that we actually do are feel the phases between signals and in this case it's also multiple signals in multiple points which is then more and thank you very much for bringing it in because i never had a second uh, let's say a, a second opinion on the matter because we <laughs> we got it in first per, in the first place, but of course we never publish because this is industrial things. But in your case, you publish it, and I love it. Thank you very much for bringing it up. <laughs> of course, of course. You know, but but I think to me that this is this is super encouraging because now you we sort of begin to understand. Oh, that's important, right? Like when you begin to understand what's really important and what's really underlying the percept. Well, then you can begin to think about the engineering challenges, right? <clears throat> and and again, as I said earlier, I think we live in a time when we have tools uh we have tools to begin to address these challenges um um and you know i see in the academic literature all sorts of really fascinating uh, you know, mesoscale sorts of actuation approaches and uh, you know in, in in the in the commercial world companies like haptex are doing some really cool things with distributing i do believe based on what i've learned here that distributed haptics um is you know an incredibly important um uh, frontier again. What problem does it solve in the world? Well, I, I haven't thought deeply about that one. But you know, in terms of advancing our understanding, and there is always video games. Uh, that is What's always, that? There is always video games. 
you know? Well, yeah, you know, we're fortunate in some sense as a field to have video games, right? Um, uh, you know, the fit is the fit is very, very good. Um, and, you know, it's it's a meaningful commercial arena. Um, uh, it, it, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, honestly, how do I say this? How do I say this without being? <laughs> um, no, you, you can be direct. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's no, okay. it's it's. Uh, um, so I'm making an analogy. <clears throat> in the, in, I talked about my early work in in haptics, doing things like you know virtual walls and so forth. What made that exciting was that it was bilateral, right? That that as soon as you go and you grab that device and you interact with the world, it's your there's a feedback loop. That's created, right? <clears throat> and it, and what made it, and, and that that feedback loop is subject to all the problems of any feedback loop, stability and so forth. Um, and when you're interacting with with very very diverse physical systems, you're talking about very very um, diverse sort of feedback gains from very small to very large. And so, <clears throat> um, so we had to deal with the fact that it was bilateral. That was fundamental. Now let's use that as a metaphor. <laughs> Everything we do is bilateral <laughs> in the sense that, you know, you, you may create some novel means of creating an experience um, for an individual, um, but to make that scale and to make that, you know, do exciting things in the real world, you need, you need those individuals to sort of be um, be in a position to sort of uh, embrace and adopt that, um, and so one of the problems that we struggle with in, in in haptics is that we're creating these novel experiences, and very often the market is not in a position where they're sort of of a mind to adopt it. Um, uh, not necessarily because it doesn't solve a problem. Maybe it does, but um, but it might be a way that that is uh, unfamiliar um, uh, and, and, and therefore there's sort of a reluctance to adopt. And so, you know, uh, we're all aware of what Meta is doing and, uh, you know, with the metaverse and, and, and it's super exciting, but they're fundamentally going to have this problem, right? Um, you know, the, the, the mode of, of interacting <laughs> is very different than what we're used to. Um, and, you know, over time, Things change, but it does take time, and there's not that much. It's 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 very very hard to do that. Um, very hard to change um, the you know, people's sort of willingness to accept new things. But gaming provides a beautiful place um, where you you sort of lower those barriers, right? And and the the willingness to embrace new experiences is is um, much greater, right? And so I think that you know we're very fortunate as a field to actually have that as a place um, where. Um, you know, new new haptic experiences uh, can can be can be introduced. So, so you know, I'm all for I'm all for, <laughs> for what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, Speaking, uh, you know, it's, I I cannot say I'm a happiest man alive. You know, <laughs> I, I build video games but it's Speaking uh, speaking of new haptic experiences, Ed, uh, I think it's time to talk a little bit about the future of haptics. And in this section, um, we want you a little bit to use your vision and look into the future to predict what will happen. In the coming time, uh, you can be extremely right or extremely wrong. We'll look back at 10 to 20 years uh, what it will be. Uh, and the question we have ready for you is, how do you think haptics and human-machine interaction will evolve, evolve in the, over the next coming 10 to 20 years? Okay, terrific. Um, rough question. It is a tough question, right? I mean, you know, it's a fun question. Um, um, I... 
I, I think that gaming will push it forward. Um, I, I do think that, yeah, <laughs> I do think that we will begin to see um, advances in distributed haptics in support of that. Um, uh, I think those will be still primarily vibrotactile, um, but I I hope that at least within that longer time frame, we begin to see things that move on. And I don't mean just thermal, which doesn't excite me personally all that much, um, but I, I mean, you know, things that are more like, you know, shape or let me back up and say, like, look, when I look out into when I look at haptics in our real world and our real life, um, you know, it's clearly a massively important part of our lives. And I think there's two main reasons. One is manipulation. That is the number one reason by far that haptics is important. So we can we can manipulate physical objects in our physical world. We all use haptics in that way all the time through our day. Um, and the number two thing would be sort of identification um, assessment sorts of things you know like um <clears throat> you know the famous haptic boxes or you can reach and identify objects by a touch very quickly and so forth we, we use that capability quite a lot as well and there's many other things right but you take those two things and now put them into the digital world and they're just kind of gone <laughs> like we just don't use haptics in those ways um and and so my prediction is that we still won't 20 years from now <laughs> um and that that's a, a little bit sad however um, uh, I, I do think that, again, getting back to XPRIZE, I do think that the remote touch applications are one area um, where we may begin to see that grow. Do I expect that to become a, you know, a very big, robust, important commercial market in that time frame? No, it's way too complicated, way too expensive. Um, but I think that we'll begin to see some um, niche things. They may be, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, astronauts in the lunar gateway, you know, controlling uh, avatars on the surface of the moon or things like that. Um, I do think an area that I'm personally kind of excited about right now is robot haptics. Um, I fully expect that to advance a great deal in the next uh, decade to two decades. Um, and by, by which I mean robots um, having much better, more like us, tactile sensing and some idea of what to do with that, <laughs> right? Um, and, and that's not an easy problem. Um, and it's not just about sensing. It's also about manipulation and degrees of freedom and actuation because you need, you need the sort of in-hand dexterity to do something interesting with that, that information. So there's a lot going on there. But I think that the tools are actually much more in place, and it's a much it's a much better problem because you don't have this incredible black box of the human perceptual system to deal with. Although probably having humans in the loop as a means of training robots to use this is is a part of the equation. So I think that's going to be an area that will that will take off, and and I'm super excited about that one. Um, what I'm so really interesting to, to to see there is that like you know in AI at the beginning we had some human inspired you know, artificial intelligence networks. And right now they're completely different, nothing to do with how we human um, are, you know, our brains are wired. And I would like to understand is because right now it seems that the robot skin perception uh, is human inspired. So there is these small patches and things like that that try to mimic how we do. But I'm kind of, uh, what I'm really interesting to understand is how, when it will completely diverge, when they will find completely different uh, perceptual patterns that will be applied to this matrix of sensors that have nothing to do with how we be how, how humans function and if we are able to get superhuman performances thanks to that yeah i i think that's a really really great um topic to raise uh, eric and um i 
I think that it 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 will absolutely follow that path where there will be a divergence and there will be sort of su superhuman performance because that's kind of how robotics work today, right? I mean, you go into a, a car factory and the robots are stronger than you are and, and you know, have bigger range of motion and things. So they're superhuman in certain respects. Um, and I think that will be the case here as well. It's sort of, otherwise it might be better to use a human. <laughs> so, um, uh, so the, uh, the question is, how do we get there? And the problem here um, is is the sort of the control problem. It's like, how do you represent the goals of a complex, dexterous task? How do you know how to take tactile information and map it into motor information? Um, and, you know, those are brutally hard problems to to solve um clearly machine learning is going to play an important part of it but i tend to think that extracting skills from humans will be at least in the early going a part of it as well because we've figured these things out <laughs> you know we can we can we can do these dexterous tasks that that, that robots just can't can't do very well. Uh, so putting people in the loop and using really advanced haptics in the way that we tend to think about haptics, it does seem like it may be a part of that at least in in the um, in the next couple of decades. Um, so I don't know if I'm right in this or not, but but um, because of that factor, I think that we'll at least um, for a time continue to see robot hands and sensing and so forth be kind of anthropomorphic until eventually we begin to understand it better and they can stand on their own better and then it will clearly move superhuman in some way. That's fantastic. Thanks. It has been an incredible, incredible answer and brilliant, incredible episode. So before closing, we usually ask to our super experts that come here if they have some uh, advice for the newbies and in this case you have a career between design and engineering and as you know a pure engineer in haptics have a lot of problem a pure designer in haptics has a ton of problem so what uh, what are your advice to pure engineers and pure designers that are interested in haptics about approaching this uh, this field <laughs> yeah those are really hard questions to ask but you're right i i have i have uh been fortunate to sort of you know to see uh, and interact with people in both camps um and and uh, and what i would say is first of all is try not to be pure <laughs> um you know um your your core expertise may be uh you know as brian more on the design end or you know you or me more in the engineering end but um but it's incredibly important to um to put yourself in a work setting which is which is uh, interdisciplinary and, and and takes a more holistic perspective because otherwise you're doomed to failure so let's not let that happen um you know and then from there i would i'd i'd, I'd say so in other words if you're a designer just um hang out with the engineers <laughs> quite a bit uh and understand understand that world um um and vice versa um but then it gets back to what i said earlier it's like um i think at the end of the day you you really have to all be committed to the idea that you're gonna you're gonna solve real problems um and um and that doesn't mean that there's not room for creative expression and and and, and all but it, it does mean that you need to think carefully about your process um and how you how you involve you know users in it um uh and uh and and how you how you 
how you hold your own feet to the fire to be sure that you're you're doing things that that matter. I think that's that's just true uh, universally. Um, for engineers, again, I'd say that. Um, <clears throat> Um, these are exciting times. Uh, we've got new tools. Um, I'd be aware of them. I'd build collaborations with people who have skills that you don't have. Um, um, and for uh, for for designers, um, uh, I, I I know a little less about all the new tools, but um, but again, I do think we live in those times where people like Eric are building those, and standards are being developed, and and. Um, and those things tend to really, um, uh, you know, kind of grease the skids for for the design community. And so, um, thinking hard about uh, about sort of you know ideas of tools and open source and how how you can create more of a, uh, more of a community, how you can have the tide rising to lift all the boats, um, uh, I think is uh, is an important thing. Ed. Thank you very much. It's been incredible, and I it's uh, I really happy to have you here after you interviewed me during my PhD uh, thesis, Viva. So it's it's a nice circle that close back. So um, uh, for our listener, uh, you are missing out if you're not joining us in the live section. We have a, a fantastic uh, people here that in a while will be able to ask their own question to our speaker, and you can find us in every podcast platform that you might think of. This uh, episode will be also published on YouTube, so uh, you'll be able to actually see my uh, my aging uh, aging skin over here. And uh, um, we'll uh, meet up again in a few weeks' time with a special event of with a vibrations. So we have a, a new format that we're trying with four different speakers that will try will try to get a bit more in technical depth about. Uh, Vibrotactile haptic technology, the different one like Pietro or uh, impact haptic technology or uh, voice coils and understanding what are the difference, what are the use cases, what you can do with one and not with the others. For everybody else, thanks a lot for listening. Ed, it's been a huge pleasure to have you here. Uh, would you like to share how uh, our listener can reach out to you if they would like to connect? Uh, sure, I'm pretty old school, so probably the best way is to, to shoot me an uh, email at my Northwestern email address, Colgate at Northwestern.edu. Fantastic. Thank you very much, and I wish everybody a wonderful rest of the day. Mm -hmm.